We are jumping a little bit into the middle of the passage. We were looking at the different ways that we are to remember um, our farness from God in Ephesians chapter 2. And just by way of reminder, uh, if, uh, if you do remember that the command there in Ephesians 2.11 was to remember. Uh, and, and just to, to reiterate that point and, um, and as an introduction, consider that point. Uh, Paul is really telling us to remember the bad news when it comes to our salvation. Uh, it's an odd command, as we said last week, because it seems to suggest that we need to dwell on the past, that we can't just move on. And it seems at odds with one of my favorite passages, which is Philippians chapter 3, verse 13 and 14, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So what are we supposed to do, Paul? You're telling us here to kind of remember all of this bad news about how far we used to be and how Gentiles in general were so far from God, and yet in Philippians you're telling us to forget what lies behind. Which is it? Well, as these things usually go, the message of Ephesians and Philippians is very similar. When Paul says, forgetting what lies behind, he's actually in the context referring to letting go of any trust that our past achievements, our past accomplishments, is an excuse to stop seeking God. You can't just say, well, I used to be in the choir, or I went to seminary, my dad's a pastor, I went on a missions trip once, and think that somehow your past good works, as good as, good as they might have been, means that you have a reason to stop growing in your faith, or worse, to think that you've arrived. I am as spiritually mature as it gets. I went to the master's seminary. No. Paul says, forget all that. You're better off thinking that they didn't happen so that every moment of every day you'll be thinking, I need to seek the Lord. I need to get as much of him as I can. I need to learn his word as if I'd never read it before. I, I need to do good works as if I had never done a good thing to anyone in the past and I'm eager and zealous to show my faith in the Lord. That's the kind of forgetting that Paul means it doesn't contradict then the idea that we are to remember the kind of people that we were before we put our faith in Jesus Christ. Because oftentimes, what Paul wants to set up when he brings up the past, and boy, I had a lot of passages to cover uh, today, so for sake of time, I won't go to all of them, but I do want you to jot them down. Um, but uh, in, in the Colossians 3, 5, and 10, you can write that one down. And onward, the reason that Paul brings up remembering your past and thinking about who you were before you got saved is so that you don't do those things anymore. The very idea is, you know, you might still wrestle with that sometimes in your heart. Just remember how awful that was. In other words, the past is a motivation to strain forward and reach towards Christ. Or as Titus 3, uh, 1 through 7 puts it, that uh, we were once these awful people uh, that, that hated each other, that, that hated ourselves, that we were uh, completely without God, foolish, disobedient, all these things. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. So he wants us to remember how, all, how awful things were so that we might honor and glorify God, that he would still save us. It gives him glory. And in fact, he also segues into, like in Colossians, then we shouldn't be like we were. We shouldn't speak evil of anyone. We should be ready for every good work. We should be gentle. We should show perfect courtesy to all people because we used to be the kind of people that didn't do any of that. So there's no contradiction between remember your past sinful lives and forget what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead because the whole point is anything and everything that propels us towards trusting in the Lord and seeking him is good. And the converse, anything that keeps you or hinders you from trusting in the Lord, putting your faith in the Lord, that is what needs to be forgotten. That is what needs to be set in the past. So 
you know, Paul himself, perfect example of this. He was formerly a persecutor of Christians. He sent them to jail. He approved of their death. If anyone thinks he might have a lot um, of regret and not believe he's of any use to God, certainly Paul. But Paul didn't look at his past and think it was something that prevented him from serving the Lord. The saying is, trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost, Paul writes. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. Don't let anything in the past, good or bad, keep you from taking that next step of faith and trusting in the Lord. Looking to the past Remembering the past, it is always for the point of pointing us to God. And I just, if, I don't know if this happens to you, but I could just be driving on the freeway and all of a sudden just some stupid thing, some foolish thing that I did just will pop into my head and I'll just be like, why did I say that? Why did I do that? It's very hard not to dwell on that and to think, man, it just makes you cringe and embarrass even though maybe no one ever cares, you know, no one's thinking about it except you. Well, that's exactly the kind of thought that it's okay to remember and then give to the Lord and say, you know, that was in the past. God forgives it. God knew that you were going to do that when he saved you. There's nothing to hold over your own head and be ashamed of. Or again, you could be thinking about, man, I used to be so Think about this a lot. I used to be so much more fervent in the faith back in college, and I used to do so many more things for the Lord and think, um, you know, that somehow that, that, that gives me a pass for not being faithful now. Like, yeah, but I did all this stuff for the Lord in the past. Well, today is today. I, I need to honor the Lord today. There's nothing in the past that commends me more to God. I have today to serve the Lord. That's all the point of remembering. Right? So the importance of this command to remember, it's one you see all throughout Scripture and one that God always commends to us, both the good and the bad, but always to propel us towards the Lord. And that brings us then to this point here. It's really the fourth and fifth points uh, of or ways that we were far from God. Remember the first one uh, there in verse 11 and 12, that we were separated from Christ, who were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise. And this is this idea of distance between us and him, especially as Gentiles, but certainly even Jewish people, when you read the Old Testament, they were far from God at many times too. But we have all understood and experienced this to some degree that uh, we have felt far from God, and that is the very state of humanity. But there's a fourth and fifth way. We're just going to tackle them together because I think they're related. Fourth and fifth way that we are far from God is that we are, we're without hope and without God in the world. What is hope? It's a very important question for your life. It's almost something that we distract ourselves from thinking about, our ultimate hope, and then only think about when things are really bad. That's not the way it ought to be. So I do think it, it, it's worth thinking about hope for just a moment this morning. Now, a typical definition of hope is something like uh, wanting or desiring a certain outcome that is expected or at least possible. I hope I get a bicycle for Christmas is more the kind of hope that we typically use um, you usually don't say something, I hope I wake up and I'm able to fly tomorrow. You know, like just wake up and fly out of my bed. So hope usually, we mean it in the sense of things that we'd like to be a certain way that are in the realm of possibility. Um, oftentimes very personal and subjective, meaning that we hope things will turn out the best for me. So I hope it cools down next week. I, I hope it doesn't rain at the trunk or treat. Um, and we see this kind of use of the word hope in the Bible where you want a certain outcome that would be beneficial to you. Paul says it all the time. He says things like, I hope to see you soon when he's writing to churches uh, in the New Testament. So that's one way that we can think of hope. It's probably the normal way that we talk about hope and we use the word hope. But that's not the kind of hope Paul is talking about 
here. When Paul says, remember a time when there was no hope, he's not talking about some specific instance where you wanted a certain thing to turn out a certain way. Uh, he's talking about the very motivation for getting out of bed in the morning, for putting one foot in front of the other. He's talking about the meaning and the purpose to do what we do. The things we tell ourselves in order to get through the day. And the conclusion that Paul comes to is that without God, there is no meaning or purpose to life. There's no assurance that what you do matters or that things are going to work out. Remove God from the equation and you remove meaning and purpose and therefore hope. Now the word for without God is the word we get atheist and atheism from. During the 1700s and 1800s, there's a scientific revolution, um, the Enlightenment. Many people seem very confident. Uh, and again, like there's always been atheists, even in Christian countries and in Christian times, there's always people who have been atheists. Um, but with the scientific revolution, there's more people willing to ascribe to that or identify as an atheist because the idea was with the scientific revolution, we can figure out the secrets of the universe. And as we do that more and more, we realize we don't need a god of the gaps to explain things that we cannot explain because as we study it, put it under a microscope, measure it, we find we can explain a whole lot of things without needing to rely on the existence of a god. We can answer all the questions about the world and the universe using only science. Well, the year is 2022, and let me assure you that science is even more baffled by the way reality works than they were 70 years ago, let alone two or 300 years ago, let alone 1,000 years ago and more. So recently, the 2022 Nobel Prize in Physics was awarded, okay? This is the headline from Scientific American talking about the Nobel Prize that was given to uh, these, I think it's three physicists, this is the headline. The universe is not locally real, and the physics Nobel Prize winners proved it. Elegant experiments with entangled light have laid bare a profound mystery at the heart of reality. Now, I'll admit, I'm not a physics major, so I'm not going to pretend to understand every facet of the research here, but it follows this trend of a lot of research after the discovery of like subatomic particles that what we are made of is really, really paradoxical and even seems to be contradictory at its core. It's almost like when we started, you know, dissecting atomic particles, we ran into particles, of course, that kept getting smaller and smaller. We thought, oh, atoms is what everything's made of, but, you know, you have electrons and a nucleus, and then you look at protons and neutrons, and you can kind of break those down into smaller and smaller bits. And then uh, as you did that, you start to realize they behave more and more contradictory and paradoxically. Um, that the rules that seem to govern them don't really make logical sense in the like A equals B, B equals C, A equals C sense. Um, they, at the core of it, you could say this, we're made up of forces and particles that operate in bizarre ways. And that's not just me saying that. One writer summed up the work of the researchers, okay? So Nobel Prize, 2022 in physics, one writer basically summed up this way. You wanna know what the conclusion was? The universe is conclusively weird. That was the <laughs> conclusion of it. So, and, and actually, Einstein, who actually wanted to deny what these Nobel Prize winners proved, so he did not want to believe that what they proved was true, he actually called this phenomenon that they discovered, this is Einstein's own words, very Halloween, he called it spooky action at a distance. That's what it's quantum entanglement, but he called it spooky action at a distance. This is Einstein, right? Brilliant mind. And that was the best description he could come up with for this idea that he thought fundamentally should not be true or else it just doesn't really add up or make sense. You know, that's very technical, right? You live in a universe that is conclusively weird and where particles do spooky action at a distance. Why do I bring this up? Without God, that 
is your hope. You live in a weird universe that doesn't quite make sense, where spooky things happen that maybe shouldn't happen. It's almost we're back to like ghosts did it. it, it I mean, I, if you want to talk about the physics experiment, I would love to talk about it. Maybe someone with a, a better mind. But I could try to explain some of the things they discovered. But it's actually a little bit disconcerting because when they say that the universe is not locally real, <laughs> I mean, there's some disturbing implications about that, okay? Or at least seems contradictory to, to our human experience. But the point is, there's no hope in any of that. There's nothing there that tells you why you should get up in the morning, go to work, or teach the kids, or help, you know, your, your parents, or, you know, do uh, work at a charity, or anything in any of that. Now, they're not, they're not necessarily trying to give you hope or meaning, but understand that um, their operating premise is that everything must be, you know, explainable. Everything must uh, be reduced down to cause and effect. And when they try to make that happen, they find out that's not the way actually reality, reality works. And if you're, if you're without God, people are not any closer to trying. You cannot come to any kind of consistent meaning or purpose to the universe. And we haven't. Despite the Enlightenment, despite the scientific revolution, despite, you know, instruments that can measure photons and electrons that are entangled together and all these things, we're not any closer uh, if we're trying to derive meaning or purpose or even understanding about the world. We're not really truly any closer. It's just more confusing, if anything. So for all the wonderful science that has been accomplished, which I am very thankful for, when it comes to trying to explain the human condition, our consciousness, our sense of morality, our sense of meaning and purpose, humans actually have not reached any better conclusion than Solomon did in the book of Ecclesiastes when he said, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, or meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. Without God, there is no purpose. We are all just quantum processes doing their thing. And in fact, it sounds like their research is there's no identifiable difference between you and me and a cold, lifeless meteor a million light years away. And we are operating in a universe where the laws of physics, they seem to be fundamentally at odds with each other. It's crazy when you look at it. What does this matter? Why am I bringing this up? Again, where there's no God, there's no hope. Where there's no hope, there's no God. When the Bible talks about hope, it is talking about the reason for the existence of all things. That you cannot reduce existence down to an uh, explanation of particles, of laws of physics. That when we talk about this universe and this existence, if you want a reason to get up in the morning, you cannot read the research study for the 2022 Nobel Prize winners of physics and say, aha, here it is. We have, as Christians, a belief in God, which is the same as saying we have a belief that there is a meaning and a purpose to the life that we are living, a dignity to our life that you cannot find if you reduce everything to molecules, to forces, which is a world without God, without any sense of God. And there's two ways, two things primarily, let's talk about, um, that, that, hope, that hope does, right? Hope is what gives us a reason to endure suffering, and hope is what gives us a reason to live holy lives, right? We're going to kind of do these a little bit faster. We're going to, after this kind of ramp up the speed, we're going here. Romans 5, verse 1 through 5. Romans 5, verse 1 through 5. Hope is a recurring theme in the book of Romans, and this is what Paul writes. He says, Romans 5, verse 1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, 
we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. One of the hardest, the, uh, let me, not hardest, one of the most natural predicaments and situations where we are grasping for hope is when things are going bad, when we are going through suffering, when there's pain, when there's loss, when there's confusion, and we want there to be a reason and a, and a meaning and a purpose behind it, or else the alternative is you're suffering and it doesn't matter who cares. It's not even the same, it's not even to say your suffering is as equivalent to, you know, like a, an animal suffering. In a godless world and universe, your suffering, the pain, the agony of, of seeing a child go through cancer, or you experiencing some accident, you can't use your arms and your legs, become paralyzed, that those things are just the same as uh, grass growing. Just as natural and normal and insignificant and just a part of reality as grass that grows. Or the sun, just, you know, all these bajillions of chemical reactions it's all the same. The only thing that can give us hope is if the suffering matters, if the suffering does something. And here it says very clearly that hope is creating in us like an emptiness, or I'm sorry, suffering is creating like an emptiness which God's love is intended to fill as we have hope in him. There is something to it. There is a dignity in the suffering that is being endured. There is a payoff. There is someone acknowledging and counting it and saying, this is going to be made right and be made whole by my love. Without God, suffering is completely meaningless and pointless. Human suffering has no greater or higher uh, reason to it. It is just like watching grass grow when you see people dying in, in a war or children starving of hunger. That's what the physics of it is. It really is. It's just the same. Only if there is a God is there hope even in the midst of suffering. Secondly, hope motivates us to live holy lives. First Peter 13 through 15 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, Peter writes, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, again, remembering who you used to be, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. In other words, Peter is saying now that when you think of your ultimate hope, which is that Jesus Christ is coming back, that is the incentive for us to live a holy life. It is the reason why you need to go to work and do an excellent job and honor the Lord by your service in that work. Or if you're a student, do, working hard at your homework and your tests and all those things, the reason that you are going to care for those kids, even though they're totally ungrateful, the reason that you are going to care for uh, loved ones and even neighbors that you don't particularly like is because there is a meaning and a purpose to all things, and that if you are a Christian, your hope is that Christ himself is going to be revealed and you're going to be um, made like him and share his glory. So while you are here on earth, 
You need to reflect that and demonstrate that in your own life, in your own holiness, in your own relationships to other people. In other words, when the Bible talks about hope, it's making exactly the claim that there is a point to everything. Whether you are suffering, whether you're pursuing a righteous, holy life, and there's many other, I mean, I really had to limit myself today when it comes to hope, that there, the hope is the reason why we do anything. It's the motivation for why we do anything. And it is a true hope. We're going to talk in just a second about false hopes, but it is the only true hope that is secured in Jesus Christ and his blood shed for us. Without God, there is no promise or no assurance that there is some future redemption, that there is some future making of all things right. There's no future promise that your suffering was worthwhile, that your holy living made any difference. You just live in a weird universe where things act spooky at a distance, as Einstein said. The problem is we, instead of remembering that we were once those without any hope and without God in the world, instead of remembering that, we forget and we start to act like there is no hope and there is no God in the world. Well, how, how, what are the ways that we show in our lives, even as Christians, that we are not actually hoping in the Lord and we're actually acting as if there's no God in the universe. Well, there's the obvious ways that people show that they have no hope, and that's, of course, in that sense of um, depression, loneliness, emptiness, hopelessness. I told the story, I think, before of this young atheist I met. He was at UCI. We're setting up our book table, which we used to have there, an evangelistic book table. He came over to help us, um, but for some reason, he thought we were the atheist club. <laughs> so he, he bothered to help us put up the tent, and he's like, oh, are you guys the atheist club? No, we're actually like a Christian book club. I mean, come on, you know, at that point, he should have been like, yeah, maybe God is trying to get my attention here because <laughs> I showed up and was... So we started talking, and he was a young Catholic. Um, he was a freshman or ex-Catholic. And, uh, you know, he's the kind of guy that started having these questions. And when he talked to the priests and the, the teachers, they didn't give him a good answer. And just kind of a, just believe what it says, kid, kind of thing. And as he got more inquisitive... They seemed to have less and less answers, and eventually came out as an atheist. I said, how's that working out for you? He said, good, but I have to take medications every day because once I became an atheist, I realized there's no like, real meaning or point to anything, and I got depressed. So now you know, I take these medications, and I'm just trying to you know, figure out you know, what, how I, I can kind of trick myself. That's my words into putting one foot in front of the other. Oh, great. <laughs> you know, like, he, he, was, he was acting like this is a good place to be. Like, oh, yeah, I'm so glad I got out of the depression of, of, of the church. Um, and now I just need to uh, be medicated constantly so I don't think too hard about the fact that there's no meaning or purpose to anything. So um, that is exactly that. I mean, Christians can get that way too. So really, I, I'm not trying to diminish um, anyone that feels depressed and hopeless like that. And if that's something that you're going through or you're struggling with, um, please let someone know. Let me know. Especially if it's something that's going on longer than, than just like a, a season. I mean, we all go through seasons where we're kind of sad, lonely, or depressed. But if it's something that's persistent, uh, I, I do want to know that. And, but that's, of course, an obvious way that we, we live as if. We forget that there's hope and we live as if there's no hope and there's no God. But there are other ways, too, that might strike more closely to home. There are other ways that we show our godlessness, and that is when we make other things our God. There's another way that we show that we don't really hope in the Bible hope, and that's when we put our hope in other things. What are some common false hopes? Well, the same ones that humanity has trusted in for since the beginning that humans have been sinners. And these are the same ways that have failed humans since the dawn of, of our sin. The first one is money. We show that we don't believe that there's hope in eternity and hope in God and that there's a God in the world when we make money our hope and our God. First Timothy 6.17. Paul says this to Timothy to, to pass on to his church. First Timothy 6.17, actually the church in Ephesus 
As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. I mean, let's be honest. Have you not ever thought, if I just had a little bit more money, I'd be okay? Have you ever thought that? Now, that might be true. Um, I'm not trying to say that, that money doesn't matter, and the Bible's not saying that. But there is a sense in which living for money, putting your hope in money, thinking that money can solve the more important problems, that that is to believe that money is a better God than God is. And trust me, in Southern California, money is an idol, even of churches, even of Christians. It's true everywhere, but I will speak to Southern California. That's where I've lived almost my entire life. Money is absolutely a way that Christians demonstrate that they don't really think the greatest hope is in heaven, but here. And um, I, I'm, I got to get to the other ones, but let me caution and warn every one of us who most of us here are, are better off than 99% of humans in history. Um, you know, so many periods of human history, people were slaves or, or, or peasants and farmers. We are very rich here. And there's a, definitely a warning embedded in those Gentiles. They used to be far from God. They had no hope. And without God in the world, there is a sense when we make money our God, we are acting the same way. Secondly, another common or false hope is politics and government. <laughs> Especially, again, lately, that seems to be what everyone thinks is going to solve everyone's problems is getting the right person in office, is voting for the right uh, people and all those things. Again, that's not to say that's unimportant, just like money. I'm not saying it's unimportant. But read what the psalmist says in Psalm 146. Psalm 146, verse 3. Put not your trust in princes, presidents, senators, congresswomen, do not put your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Politicians can do a lot of good. You look at the life of William Wilberforce. He abolished slavery in the British Empire in the late 17, early 1800s, um, entirely without ever having to pick up a gun. He accomplished the abolishment of the slave trade and slavery in England within his lifetime, but he died. And any other further reforms he would have tried to accomplish died with him. And that's at best. At worst, when you look at the princes and the uh, political powers in the Bible, they're almost always the bad guy. They're almost always the ones leading people astray. They're almost always the one, ones um, disparaging the name of God from the New Testament to the Old Testament as well. Why would we think that somehow politics, government, they're going to save us, a politician? No. Again, it's not that it's unimportant. That's why Paul says, 1 Timothy, you need to pray for people in positions of power and authority. But there's a difference between praying for them and putting your hope in them. Let that not be the case, that we'd fall again on this false hope that has failed humanity for thousands and thousands of years, putting our hope and trust in politicians, presidents and dictators and prime ministers and governors and everyone else. Pray for them. Care for them. Love them. Submit to them. Don't put your hope in them. Thirdly, what is another false hope, an acceptable idol in churches, family. Now here, I don't have one particular verse, but it's all throughout the entire Bible. I just thought of one. Can you trust your family? You know who trusted uh, her husband was uh, Sarah. And uh, Abraham basically said, I, this is my sister. 
uh, and uh, he ended up getting his wife <laughs> taken as a uh, concubine of some foreign king. That's how much you can trust family, okay? That's Abraham, the father of the faith. <laughs> he and you can go through, I mean, <laughs> Jacob and Esau, Joseph and his brothers, Moses and his wife. You can go through and see just how much you can trust family to be your hope. Jesus and his brothers. You can't put your hope in your family. You need to love them. You need to care for them. You got duties and responsibilities and obligations to them. But if you make the building up of your family your hope, you don't know how quickly they can turn on you. I mean, actually, you do. Almost all of you, I'm sure, can point to something in your family where just everyone turned on him or she turned on you or, you know, the whole family got put into uproar because they did this. You know it. You, I don't even need to tell you why. You can't put your hope in your family as if that could be an idol, that if I can just pass on my legacy to my, my children, children, and make that your identity, your hope in this life above God. Just too many examples of how that fails in the Bible. And, just, and the first one I thought of was just Abraham and Sarai. I mean, Catherine would kill me. <laughs> if I let her become a concubine to some other government leader, I would be dead. <laughs> and you know how many times that happened to Sarah? Twice. <laughs> you can't trust anybody. <laughs> you can't trust your family. I mean, I, I know, making light of it, and Sarah, I'm sure, now has forgiven Abraham in heaven, but boy, unbelievable. <laughs> unbelievable. That's in Genesis 12, if you want to read that. Um, so you can't, you can't put your hope in family. <laughs> As if that's what's going to be, you know, oh, my kids, they're, they're the ones that are going to redeem me somehow. And man, don't put that on your kids anyway. Don't put that on your kids anyway. You know the last false hope, most common, to put your hope in? It's you, yourself. To put your hope in yourself. And that is the mantra of the day, is that you have it within you. You can... You know, do anything. You can be anyone. The power is within you. The strength is within you. You, 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 you. It's all over. And that is about the person I trust the least in this room is me. I've said it before, but I mean, the classic analogy or illustration is in college. I'd have a test the next day, right? And in the night, you know, as we talk about nighttime Yuri and morning Yuri, nighttime Yuri is goofing off and saying, you know, I can do this tomorrow morning, a couple hours before the test, right? And the idea is like nighttime Yuri writes this check, right? And then morning Yuri cannot cash that check. He wakes up an hour before the test, 30 minutes before the test. Why would I, why did I believe that guy last night that said I would have time in the morning to study for this test? I know that guy is totally not trustworthy, well, who is it? It's me. Nighttime, Yuri writes his check. Morning, Yuri can't cash. I mean, you probably know that. Who's the person that, that you know knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it most consistently, personally? Who do you know? It's you. Come on, don't lie. Don't lie to yourself. That's even part of it. You can't even, you lie to yourself. And yet the mantra of the day is exactly contrary to what Jeremiah told um, uh, told the people, Jeremiah 17, verse 5. He says, Thus says Yahweh, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from Yahweh. Of course, blessed is the man who trusts in Yahweh, in Yahweh who trusts the Lord, verse 7. And in verse 9, Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? You can't even understand yourself sometimes. Why do you do the things that you do that you know are wrong? I know most of you struggle with that. I mean, maybe you don't. But at least the ones I've had the privilege of talking to here in this room, you're constantly wrestling with, I know the right thing to do. I just, I don't know why I keep doing the wrong thing. I wrestle with that too. You can't put your hope 
in yourself. I mean, haven't you let yourself down so many times you start to question, yeah, maybe I am not the solution to all of my problems. Maybe I am the problem. That's why my hope must be in the Lord. That's why it's most pitiable for people who are putting their hope in money, in the government, in family, in themselves. It's sad to see when that doesn't pan out, and yet we constantly run to those things. Apart from Christ, that is all that we have, is these false, very thin hopes of having no God in this utterly weird, confusing universe. That's the best that we have. Unfortunately, providentially, graciously, Paul then writes, but, and this is, a, this is like in, a, in ver, uh, chapter 2, verse 4, of course, where it's like, but God, being rich in mercy, we have another, but now in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 2.13, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. There's an intervention of God. Though there was this great chasm and distance between God and man, us pursuing all these hopes that cannot ever fulfill, us making God's things that cannot be God, what, what God did on our behalf was to send his son. The force of this verse is that we are to remember how vast this distance is between God and man. It needs to be a great distance, not a small one, not one that I can leap over in my own strength and power. This must be an uncrossable sea where you cannot see the other side. We need to heighten in our memories how far this gap is between God and man so that when we speak of the blood of Christ, we see how great the sacrifice was that Jesus made. Notice that Paul speaks of the blood of Christ Jesus. Remember, Christ is a title. It means Messiah, the anointed one, the special one, the chosen one. Jesus is the human name of the second person of the Trinity. It means God saves. Why does Paul use Jesus' earthly human name and not just the title. He did that before. We talked about that. You're separated from Christ. And actually, he's going to say, by the blood of Christ. Why not just speak of the Messiah? Why bring the name Jesus into it? Well, this is intentional. Because only a human has blood. The divine, God, does not have blood. It doesn't have flesh and uh, flesh. And blood, you know, all the, the gods of the Romans and the Greeks, they were basically like humans, and they could die and, and so on. But that's not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This God is completely beyond, far and above, different, distinct from the creation, cannot be made analogous to any creature. It's the, you know, first, second, third commands. But what Christ did was added to the divine nature, this human nature that did have blood in order to be the perfect sacrifice for our sins, as we read in Hebrews 9 earlier today, that for our sin, we must give our own life in payment. There must be judgment. There must be justice. And the blood of Christ speaks to another one paying the price, bringing the judgment that was due or taking the judgment that was due to us upon himself. The blood of Christ represents God's full righteous judgment against sin, being taken upon a perfect God-man. And that is the height of the argument here. This incrossable, uncrossable distance between God and men could only be crossed by the God-man, Jesus Christ. We are to remember then not just that there is a great distance, not just the sin, not just the fact that we used to be without hope and all these things and, and get depressed about how awful things were before we knew Jesus. We are to remember even more so that Jesus Christ died and rose again to bring us near to God. Or as Paul put it in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, that if 
we have hope only in this life, we are most to be pitied. If what we believe in only has to do with this life, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15, 19, and 20. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. I know that for some of you, probably many of you, you have things in the past that you'd rather forget. Shameful things and hurtful things, mistakes and sins that, that caused you and caused other people a lot of grief and sadness. Paul is not saying that you are always going to be defined by these mistakes that you've made and by these horrible events that have happened to you. He's affirming, yes, they are in the rearview mirror. And that if those things represented a time when you were far from God, you have all the more reason to be thankful now that you're near to him and you're not the person that you once were. But I think there's another application as well, not just a personal one, because Paul is talking about a category of people, the Gentiles. Remember at one time the Gentiles were in this state of being without God and without hope. How do we apply that idea? Well, remember, Gentiles just means the nations of the world that are not, you know, the Jewish people. <laughs> That's everywhere. How do we apply this? Well, he wants us to have a connection to the plight of all humans throughout human history and now. And just look at human history and how far they were and are from God. It's ugly and brutal and bloody. Maybe you yourself have been blessed to not have had a lot of sin in your life before you got saved. Maybe you got saved at a younger age. Maybe you're, you had good Christian parents who protected you from a lot of your own sin and the sins of others, and that's a blessing. But if that is the case, you can still remember that the condition of humanity has not been so charmed. That most of the world, if you look not even that far, you see things that should break your heart and should humble you. There's war occurring. People dying. There are protests against brutal regimes in Iran and other places. There are child warriors in Africa still killing each other, children. There's greedy and heartless men and women in positions of power just sitting idly by. There is violence that we see in our own country from, from the womb to the schoolrooms. Part of remembering the condition of Gentiles is just to say, look into the world and you will see a world when there's no hope and there's no God. People who don't have any promise that things are going to work out and that there's a reason to get up and live a holy and godly life. No matter when you got saved, we all need to remember what it's like to have no hope and be without God in the world. And if you need a reminder, just look. Just talk to someone, actually, and ask them some good questions about what's going on in their life. The problems that we see around the world, they stem from sin that separates man from God. And we should have pity on the lost and have compassion on them as Jesus did. Remember, the group that Jesus spent the most time rebuking were the religious people, the religious hypocrites who had no pity on the lost, who spent all their time condemning what sinners were doing. Let's not fall into the same trap. Let us instead remember that Jesus came to be the hope of the Gentiles. Matthew chapter 12, verse 15 through 21. And we'll close here. Jesus had just <clears throat> healed on the Sabbath. And uh, he had done a couple things on the Sabbath. And that just angered the religious leaders to no end. And um, they, because he healed a man on the Sabbath, they conspired how to kill him. And then Jesus left. And Matthew makes this commentary about what was happening to Jesus. Verse 18, Matthew 12, 18. Behold, he's quoting the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, 
my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I'll put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Jesus has always been a savior, a hope for the nations of the world, not just Israel's Messiah, but the Messiah for all. And so we need to be about the same mission to proclaim this Jesus to the nations of the world because they are far off. Now, one of the implications, I think, also of Ephesians is saying there is no one, there's no one that is too far from the saving grace of Jesus. I've thought there were people that like, no way this could person ever become a Christian. And thankfully, the Lord showed me that I was wrong. There's no one too far off. You need to remember that too. If you think you are not, you're not far off when God saved you, like he just, he just gave you a little boost into heaven, because you're, but you're pretty much all the way there. Your, your calibration is off for your sin. You, you don't, you're not seeing your sin the way you ought, and you ought to pray to the Lord to, to remind you and show you how far away you were. But for the most part, I think we understand that, and our hearts are broken over that. Well, thank the Lord for his blood that saved us. And if you're not a Christian this morning, why do you put one foot in front of the other? What is your hope in this life if there's no God? Or have you made up your own God? Well, how do you know that God is real? <laughs> Who is that God that you pretend to have a hope in? If it's not the objectively presented God of the Bible, then it's just a figment of your imagination. You're just following yourself. And you can't trust yourself. So I'd urge you, if you're not a Christian, to consider the words of Christ and his word, that you come before him humbly and broken with just your sin, and he offers forgiveness through his son. Heavenly Father, thank you. I, I, I hope, Lord, <laughs> that we would see that our hope must be in you and you alone. And if we do have some other hope in this life, crush it, destroy it. Reveal it to our hearts that we might take, tear it down. Because what we don't need is to set our hope on things that will not satisfy, that will not save. Lord, help us to have our hope in you and you alone, that, that you have been true to your promise over and over again in your word, and we can trust in you with this, with our very life. So Lord, we pray for those in our lives that maybe have no hope, that we might be the light that brings the gospel to them in the hope of Jesus Christ. Help us be faithful to that, especially as we come into a season where um, it's Christmas and the holidays and Thanksgiving and all these things. What tremendous opportunities will be presented to us. May we lay hold of them for the glory of God and for the sake of his gospel. In his name we pray, amen.